Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canada's Great War, where I look at the First World War history of Canada. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Monday, Wednesday, Saturday. From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. The past few episodes, I've talked about the battles that Canadians were facing early in 1915, but today I'm taking a pause and looking at what life was like for the Canadian soldiers in the trenches. We all know that it's not a great place to be. There was mud, rats, and the smell of the dead in no man's land, not to mention the risk of death from the Germans on the other side. The best way to describe life in the trenches was extended periods of boredom with occasional moments of sheer terror mixed in. Major R.J. Bateman of the 28th Battalion would describe trench life in a similar manner, stating, quote, The shortest phrase I know of which attempts to sum up life in the trench is days of an endurable monotony with moments of indescribable fear. The phrase, as far as it goes, is a good description. End quote. For the soldiers in the trenches, the day began with the anticipation of a German attack. The usual time of attack was at dawn, so Canadian soldiers in the trenches would stand too. This meant guarding the frontline trenches against an attack. If the attack never came, the soldiers would then gather for their inspections, breakfast, and their rum ration. Through the rest of the day, it was typically a time for chores. This meant repairing duckboards, cleaning latrines, filling sandbags, and conducting trench maintenance. During these daylight hours, it was best to conduct work below ground and away from the snipers who were looking for a head to poke up. It was an all-work, of course, and there was time for writing letters, gambling, reading, and keeping a journal. And while rations would often be less than desirable, sometimes food was quite good for the soldiers. In one letter from an unnamed soldier printed in the Ottawa Citizen in March of 1916, he wrote, quote, For breakfast, about seven in the morning, we have tea and cocoa, bacon, and bread, and sometimes fish. Our dinners consist of a pound of fresh beef, potatoes, or bread, and perhaps a steak. For tea again, we don't do too badly. We usually get bread and jam, biscuits, and tea and cocoa. Generally, we do our own cooking on our trench fire, but when there's a shortage of cooks, our rations are brought to us already prepared. End quote. What did the, uh, what did the soldiers think of your cooking? Not much. At the back, when they were in reserve, it was good. But carrying the rations in sandbags wrapped in two papers and the men walking towards the trenches and shelling coming along, he'll duck. Ducking on the, on the ground. Well, what did this food consist of exactly? What, what beef. We had first... Hot, hot beef, eh? Hot beef. We had first-class food, mind you. Oh. Not every day. Sometimes they had bully beef. But the food we received was very good. We had potatoes yeah. and we had first class beef. I can tell you that. Mm. Out of the fat of that beef, we used to make dripping. And we were doing that in the back line. They were using that 
it was sen, you know, at the reserve. Of course, steak was not something everyone enjoyed, and often food was stale and wet rather than fresh and tasty. There were no proper cooking arrangements. You had to do the best you could over a small burner or hand heat. As time went on, the trenches were improved, the dugouts were made deeper, you had better facilities uh, in the deep dugouts for doing your own cooking. In a dugout, on each company front, down in the worst smelling of all the dugouts, was set the company cook with his Dixies. And periodically, the boys on duty in the trenches would be called, and they'd come down with their little mess tins and get this dreadful food. Your bread was always plastered and covered with jute hairs. Rashes came up in sandbags. Bully beef came up. This was our great staple. McConaughey's ration. A dreadful thing with about a quarter of an inch of gray grease on the top when you turn the key on it. For those who arrived in the trenches, like Private William Reed of North Vancouver, there was more often delight at being there, but of course, as the days would go on, that would change. Reed would write home in April 1915, quote, We have been in the trenches for three days holding a line of our own. It is not so bad as you would imagine. In fact, we had a fairly good time and enjoyed ourselves. I am now writing beside a cozy fire. We have in fact been comfortable and well-treated everywhere. End quote. When night came, the danger did not disappear. At this point, the men would begin to do their work out in the open, moving out into no man's land to repair barbed wire, dig trenches, gather bodies, and more. The issue was that the Germans would patrol in greater numbers and would conduct raids or attempt to capture troops to gather the intelligence they wanted for an attack. Lance Corporal J.N. Lind would write in a letter home, quote, We are divided into two parties, one party being instructed to fill the sandbags and the other to carry them and rebuild the wall. While we were in the act of laying down our equipment, the enemy opened up on us with four high-explosive shells, followed in about ten minutes with shrapnel. The first shell struck about ten feet from the men in the crater, completely burying their equipment and filling their eyes and face with earth. Believe me, it's some shock to stand in the open and get the afterblast of those shells. End quote. The rats were something that every soldier hated, and every soldier had to deal with them almost constantly. Due to the food and waste in the trenches, the rats would become bloated and very brave when it came to getting food. It was not unusual to wake up to find a rat attempting to bite a finger or toe. And the rats would also spread disease and lice, which constantly irritated the soldiers. Private Harold Saunders would state, quote, One got used to the many things, but I never overcame my horror of the rats. They abounded in some parts great loathsome beasts gorged with flesh. A battalion of Jerry's would have terrified me less than the rats did sometimes. About the same time every night, the dugout was invaded by swarms of rats. Once we drenched the place with creosote, it almost suffocated us, but did not keep the rats away. They pattered down the stairs at the usual time, paused a moment and sneezed, then got to work on our belongings. End quote. Merritt Powell would write home stating, quote, When I first went into the real trenches, the rats and the vermin were, I believe, more a source of irritation to me than either the danger or the horrible picture of present-day warfare. I discovered that some rat with a well-developed appetite in a dugout while on sentry duty, watching the Germans, had gnawed an enormous loaf of French bread and gnawed another hole fully as large to come out the pack. After that, rats and I were a sworn enemy. End quote. 
There was also the game of killing rats in the trenches, Powell relates, quote, We usually pass the time killing rats with a bayonet. The rats will come right up to you if you do not move, and I was watching a black one. They're all colors. And he climbed up a piece of old galvanized tin. Just as I decided to napoo the rat, a ricochet bullet passed his head and went into a sandbag nearby my own head. The rat had ducked at the same time that I did. End quote. Private C.C. Street would write, quote, It is just wicked in the trenches for rats. There's a running board at the bottom of each trench, and almost as I went along I would carry my pick handle and nail the beasts as best I could. We could not leave anything lying down, because if we did, the rats would get it, and if a man left his coat lying anywhere, it would not be a minute before it would be in the pockets and around. End quote. They speak of trenches. Trenches is too romantic a name. These were ditches, common, ordinary ditches. As time went by, they became filthy. We had no garbage disposal, no sewage disposal. You'd dig a little trench off the main trench, dig a deep hole, and that was your latrine. You threw everything you didn't want out over the parapet or the parador. And if you stood ever at a place where with powerful binoculars you could look at the trenches, you saw this sort of strange line of garbage heap wandering uphill and down dale as far as the eye could see. And in that setting, men lived as if it were the way men should live. An article on December 14, 1915 would detail how terrible the rats were, stating, quote, Most of the men back on short leave have complained more of a want of facilities for cleanliness and the consequent torment from small deer than from the German attacks, but it is now the rats that are becoming the principal grievance. For some weeks past, the Germans have shown a tendency to diminish, but the rats are on the increase. The houses, the cellars, the barns, the fields, the woods, the tents and the trenches are besieged by them. End quote. Reverend Captain B. W. Pullinger would relate the life of sharing space with rats and lice, many of whom were brave, especially at night, and he would state, quote, There are lots of little things that will take an interest in soldiers in France. Chief of these were the rats and the seam squirrels. The latter made sleep a constant problem till the soldiers evolved a method of tricking them. It was necessary to turn a garment inside out, outside in, inside out until the cooties got tired and went to sleep, after which the soldiers could gain repose. End quote. Trench foot was another problem for soldiers. When it was cold and raining, soldiers would develop the condition that was similar to frostbite and could often lead to gangrene and amputation. Private Saunders would write about his own experience with trench foot and he would say, quote, My socks were embedded in my feet with caked mud and filth and had to be removed with a knife. Lack of rest became a torment. Undisturbed sleep seemed more desirable than heaven and much more remote. End quote. Trench foot was particularly bad when it rained or when it snowed. In one report from a week in November, more than 700 cases of trench foot were reported in the trenches. I remember one session up the line uh, coming on towards spring there. I couldn't call it an adventure. I don't know what you would call it. But they had... Uh, periodically done a little shelling up there, you know, and we had a lot of rain. Sometimes we had some snow that never lasted more than, you know, snowed at night and went the next day, but uh, it created a sea of mud in this no man's land and everywhere else, so uh, actually I don't think there was much chance of either side attacking the other. You wouldn't have been able to get across no man's land in the sea of mud. 
but we had a really uh, wet period, one period during the line, and uh, the trenches about half caved in with the amount of rain there, so they were ditched full of mud in the trench. They pulled everybody out of the line except the boots running. So they pulled us out too, I don't think anybody could have come across but they left us in there, but we had a, that was about the third day, about seven days. We had about four days rough there, really, of the weather conditions, not the, you know, not the fighting conditions, the weather conditions. I remember they had issued us all hip rubber boots to needed to walk up and down the trench. And when we were relieved coming out of there, I can remember getting stuck to this may sound kind of like some of these tall stories fellows tell, but actually I'll do getting stuck in the trench and somebody happened to pull me out there, walking along the communication trench. There's so much mud there that you get in there and couldn't, you know, try to lift one foot out and you just couldn't do it. Had to have some help. Of course, a report published in the Ottawa Journal with the usual war propaganda would state, quote, A most remarkable medical development is the way soldiers are able to stand up to their waists in icy water for stretches of 36 hours without visible injurious results. Trench foot has been much in evidence, but it's almost incredible how splendidly the mass of men went through the experience. End quote. Of course, as the war went on, soldiers would find ways to deal with trench foot and keep it off. General Arthur Curry would state in March of 1916, quote, The health of all the troops is excellent. So is the discipline, and so is their spirit. Last winter we had a deal of trench foot to contend with, but this year we have beaten it off. We now regard trench foot as significance of bad discipline, and as a further preventative, the men in the trenches all have rubber boots. End quote. As can be expected, companies would get on board to try and sell their products to families back home, using the dreaded trench foot as a selling point. Wool Coat Sweaters would publish an advertisement in the Saskatoon Daily Star that would state, quote, See that the boy who represents your family over there is plentifully supplied with warm-knit things. Regulation yarns for army purposes obtained on the second floor. End quote. Troops would often try to remove the boredom of the trenches through things like trench newspapers. There were as many as 30 soldier-produced newspapers, which often gave a candid look at life in the trenches for Canadian soldiers. One of the most anticipated events was when mail would come in, offering a glimpse at home that seemed so far away. Reverend B.W. Pullinger, a chaplain who served at Flanders, would write, quote, If you could see them when the mail comes in, how they crowd around the postman, and how they go off into the corner to devour every word in their letters. Not only do they read and reread every word, but they read the envelope, the address, the postmark, and everything. End quote. While letters were always welcomed, something greeted with enthusiasm more than anything else were cigarettes. One private would say in a letter that was printed on July 31, 1915 in the Montreal Gazette, quote, It is easy to do without food now and then because there are times when even in the trenches one gets tired of a steady diet of bully beef and mulligan, but to have to do without tobacco is much more of a serious matter. I have been without food myself for a two-day stretch and scarcely noticed it, because just at the time I had plenty of smokes on hand. End quote. Major John Pringle would state of the arrival of mail, quote, It is not the value of the parcel, but the fact that it is from home that counts. End quote. Boredom was always something present for the troops, 
Dr. E.B. Lang would write home and state, quote, I think there are probably three outstanding emotions, thrills, fears, and boredom, and the greatest of these is the last. The number of men of all various units is based upon these necessary for maximum effort. Accordingly, when the fighting is dragging along from day to day, as it is now, one can imagine how very many are idle a great part of the time. End quote. Of course, there was always the danger that death could come at any moment. Snipers would terrorize soldiers who happened to poke their heads up above the trench, and there was always the danger of shelling gas attacks and full-scale attacks from the other side. One soldier writing home who was not identified states, quote, The snipers were at work as soon as day broke. Having crossed one of our trenches, the German sniper mortally wounded one of my comrades. The poor fellow was carrying his own stretcher in turn, and he fell headlong with a groan. End quote. Another soldier writes, quote, Along one stretch of front, we were much puzzled by the angle of which the sniper's bullets were coming over. On the left was a line of leafless pollard willows, but we could see that there was nobody behind the trunks. End quote. Private C.D.B. Whitby relates another story regarding the danger of snipers, stating, quote, The ways of the German snipers are very devious. One, for instance, gave the regiment in particular a lot of trouble. He had wormed his way out into the open, dug a rifle pit in no man's land between the opposing trenches, and with a rifle fitted with a silencer sniped merrily at relief and working parties. Food was brought to him by a white and tan dog, and it was the dog that led to his undoing. Now the orders are to shoot any of the canine species seen around the firing line. End quote. Life was bad enough for the soldiers in the trenches that it was generally expected that the infantry machine gunners would lose 10% of their total strength every month to death, wounds, or illness. This was called the wastage rate, and it meant that a 100-strong infantry unit would see 10 men killed, wounded, or incapacitated, even if there was no formal attack. We went into the line in the sector in front of Camel Hill. When we took over the trenches, they seemed to be very nice trenches, but of course they were situated on the uh, east slope of Witchet Ridge, and when the uh, fall and winter rains came, our trenches almost disappeared. Uh, we were left naked to the world for a while, and so we had to start in the winter to reconstruct practically the whole line. It was a very quiet winter. Actually, we fought the weather, not the Germans. The trenches in the Ypres salient were actually not trenches, they were barricades. Because the moment you went down about two shovels deep, <laughs> the water came in. And as the weather got bad and the snow came and the rain came, the trenches gradually sloughed in. There was a, a bit of a creek ran through their line then through ours. And uh, the Germans, uh, they plugged it up and kept it back of their line for a while and made quite a pool out of it and then they let it out. And it came over and flooded our trenches for about, uh, oh, uh, a couple hundred yards. They painted a, a fence uh, canvas. We set that up where the um, sandbags were, you see, overnight to try and make the Germans think that we'd built a new trench. Now, for my soldier profile today, I'm going to look at Private A.G. Hall. From Brandon, Manitoba, he was one of the first to enlist from the community, and he would leave the community to serve with the 8th Battalion. While serving with his battalion, he was gassed at Ypres, but despite his injury, he would not leave his battalion. 
A short time later, at the Battle of Festubert, an exploding shell fell near him and severely wounded him in three places. He would crawl with a few of his comrades out of the trench and into a dressing station after also being hit by a gas attack. Despite his injuries, he would choose to return to the front lines and his fellow soldiers. Soon after, his battalion was ordered to make a bayonet charge on the Germans, but the night before Hall would have been part of that charge, a German shell hit the parapet where he was, killing several of his comrades and wounding others. He would again be sent to recover from his wound, but this time he would carry a piece of the shell near his heart, something which would be very dangerous during that time. Upon arriving in Canada, he was weak and in poor physical condition due to the effects of gas attacks, his several wounds, and the long ocean journey. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Trench Life for the Soldiers. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from the WarMuseum.ca, Global News, the Star Phoenix, Vancouver Province, Calgary Herald, the Winnipeg Tribune, the Ottawa Journal, Vancouver Daily World, CBC Veterans Affairs, and the Saskatoon Daily Star. Thanks. See you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.